Get 0% interest for 48 months on any replacement project right now at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Our experts complete the installation with no hassle or mess, leaving only perfect results. Schedule your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the WTMJ Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. Today is the day that early in-person absentee voting, I know that's a mouthful, but um, what, what happens is Absentee voting is typically conducted by mail, right? So you request the ballot in the mail. They send you the ballot back. You fill the thing out. You send it in. That's how you do it. Well, in Wisconsin, we also allow early in-person absentee voting. And it, it started today in most, if not all, of our communities, meaning that you, you find the polling place. And not every polling place that is open on Election Day is open for early voting. But, for example, where I live, you, you go to City Hall and you show up. You go through all the things. There were a number of volunteers there. You show them your photo ID. They give you the ballot. They give you an envelope. You fill out the ballot. You put it in the envelope. You don't seal it. You fill out the outside of the envelope. And then, you know, right there, there is a place where I was, a, a nice Nice lady who takes it. She looks at what you've written on the outside of the ballot, makes sure that you have filled it out properly, and then she witnesses it. She signs what she needs to do. They seal it, and then they put it in this box, and presumably it will stay in the box till Election Day where they will. one of the poll workers will start to open all the absentee ballots and start filling them through the machine. So, okay, well, very, very cool. So I I have now voted. I'm proudly wearing my I Voted sticker. It's just one of these other options that are there. For me, it's actually, it's the perfect medium because I I like the idea of in-person voting. I I do, I do. But on election day, for example, I've I've got, my my morning is just kind of a nightmare. So this was the idea of, here, let's get this all done. So now it's all taken care of. That is another thing checked off the list. So Early in-person voting has started, and if you want to make sure you get your votes in, you can do that, and I encourage everybody to get out and vote. I said in the lead-up to this, it is extremely rare that there will be a story that gets featured prominently in the news that I don't have at least something to, to say about. Because, I mean, that's kind of what I get paid to do for a living. But every once in a while, there's a story, and I look at it, and I just shake my head, and and I just, I don't even know what to offer other than to just comment on the story. And that one is this horrible, horrible story about the death of six people in the apartment fire in the village of Heartland. If you will recall, on Friday, we were in our breaking news situation, and there was the report that at this but it was at a four, like this apartment complex, I believe it was a four-family out in Heartland, there was this fire, and they found originally reports were seven people dead. It was later modified to say six people dead, that the, the building had gone up in flames like about five o'clock in the morning. Uh, a number of the apartment residents had gotten out, but the reports were, now we know that, that six people had died. Now that is a horrible, horrible story in, in and of itself. And then it was interesting because the authorities were being somewhat 
circumspect in, in how they were describing this um, on Friday and even on Saturday. They were talking about there, there being a potential criminal investigation, which suggested that the fire may have been set and, and things like that. But as it turns out, it's even worse than that, because now apparently what we are learning is that the, the, the father, the man, he apparently, um, he was the father and stepfather to four kids and his wife. Apparently what happened is it seems that he, he shot them all, um, shot the kids, shot the wife. I'm not sure exactly the order of this, but my guess is then set the apartment on fire because they found an ignitable liquid and multiple firearms in the unit and then shot himself. So you have just as horrible a situation as you can possibly imagine. My frustrations about the, these murder-suicides, and I don't mean to be flip about it, and, and I think you know it's just terrible that people get to the point in their life where they decide that they're going to take their own lives, but the, these murder-suicides, it's like, oh, okay, if you've gotten to that point, seriously, what, why don't you just do the suicide? I mean, if you've gotten to the point where you're going to take your own life— do the suicide. It's this idea that you're going to kill people around you, and in this case, you know, children. It's just, it, it is unthinkable, and I'm sure there's going to be some more details that emerge about the, the background of the man and things like that, but this this is, it's just as bad as it gets. And whenever we talk about stories, I, I always, I try to find a larger point from them, okay, you, you've got a crime story, but is there something you can draw from this? Is there something that we should learn from what happened moving forward that you can do something differently? Um, you know, those are the types of things. Sometimes in these horrible stories, you try to find you know some sort of silver lining, and you know, occasionally, occasionally, even in the worst sort of story, you will be able to find some of those silver linings. I'm sorry, this is one. There, there's no larger point to be drawn from it. There's absolutely no silver lining. This is as horrible as it gets. And I I know they have grief counselors out in Heartland and stuff. This is one where it is just completely and totally inexplicable. You can't draw any sort of larger conclusions from this, but it's about as bad as it gets. All right, when we come back, I want to talk about another example of reckless driving what was going on, and whether justice was done. Stick around. All right, here's the story. From today's TMJ4, driver faces lesser charge after killing pedestrian. I thought they were going to get him for murder. A driver is facing a lesser charge after killing a pedestrian in a crash so loud it set off a shot spotter alert. Shot spotter alerts is the system they have that they can track gunshots. So this crash was so loud they thought it was a gunshot. All right, here's what happened. The morning of September 7th, all right, the sound that sounded like gunshots was Jackie Rourke being hit by a driver as she crossed the street at 5.46 a.m. She was pronounced dead 17 minutes later, 118 feet from where she was hit. Okay, so let's—she was hit. Her body was found 118 feet later, so that's that's like 40 yards. That's that's almost half a football field. Crash reconstruction experts wrote, the skid mark started approximately 14 feet prior— to her resting place and continued 160 feet to the place where the vehicle came to rest. 
The posted speed limit on Tetonia Avenue is 30 miles an hour. The crash caused injuries to her head. She broke both arms, both legs below the knee, fractured her pelvis. They could only identify her by her fingerprints. Okay, so this this is another one. Really, really awful. They ultimately tracked her down. The driver, 23-year-old Kristen Gordon, remained on the scene and was arrested. Okay, so in this case, this was not one of the hit and runs that you typically get. This was a hit, and at least the driver stayed on on. The scene. According to the DA's office, Gordon was not supposed to be driving because he did not have a valid license. Because he did not have a valid license, he's being charged in connection with Rourke's death. Death. He was released on $2,500 cash bail. Okay, so apparently th- this is the story. According to Gordon and his girlfriend, there was another vehicle on the road driving recklessly that caused him to crash into Rourke. While driving his girlfriend to work with their three children in the car, Gordon's girlfriend told police there was a dark blue vehicle driving recklessly, making sudden lane changes and swerving back and forth. Because they feared for their safety, she says Gordon sped up to pass the vehicle near Tatonia and Ruby. So there's this car driving erratically. Their answer is, we're going to accelerate to try to get past it. When he started to pass the dark blue vehicle, Gordon's girlfriend says the vehicle hit his car near the rear passenger side, and then he hit Rourke. Police indicated in a search warrant there was no damage consistent with another vehicle striking Gordon's vehicle. So it, it appears that he's lying about that. So you, you've got a car that's driving erratically. They try to speed past it, and in the process of speeding past it, hit and kill this woman. Um, One of her friends says, I thought they were going to get him for murder. Uh, The DA's office says, at this point, he's being charged with a felony for driving in the first place. There's no question in this case that the victim is a totally innocent person, and it's an unspeakable tragedy for our family. The DA's office says there is no indication how fast Gordon was traveling. They are only able to charge him with what they know. He didn't have a valid license, and he was driving when he crashed and killed Rourke. Um, So... They, they're not able to tell how fast the car was going because apparently they, they didn't have this car didn't was so old or whatever it didn't have a lot of the technology that gives you an idea of how fast it's traveling. Um, they did you know look at skid marks and things like that and the the estimates are he was probably going in the neighborhood of 40 plus miles an hour when he, he hit and killed the woman. So they say, look, based on the evidence, this is all we can charge him with, which is, um, you know, killing her while he's operating without a motor, a valid motor vehicle license. The charge, knowingly operating motor vehicle without a valid license, causing death is a class H felony punishable by up to six years in prison. So that that's kind of what he's looking at. So you have this lady who's dead because she was once again in the wrong place at the wrong time, she was in this situation where, okay, she's, she's now dead because the guy who's not supposed to be driving in the first place accelerates to get past some other allegedly reckless driver and hits and kills the lady. All right, our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Here is the bigger picture as I see this story. The guy wasn't supposed to be driving in the first place. 
he did not have a valid driver's license. Now, I don't know if that means it was a suspended license, if it was a revoked license, if he had never gotten a driver's license in the first place. But here you have a guy who does not have a valid driver's license, who is on the road taking his girlfriend and their three children to to work, and, and he's not legally allowed to drive. Now, in this case, somebody is dead. He's going to be prosecuted, and presumably he's going to go to to prison. At least I I hope he goes to prison. But the larger point to this is this driving without a license happens all the time, all the time, whether it's people who don't have a valid license or a suspended license or a revoked license or never had one. This is a large number of the people that are out there on the street. And the truth of the matter is, unless they do something like this— relatively high rate of speed, hit and kill somebody, they are never, ever, ever held accountable. Now, my guess is also, and it's just a guess, but my guess is if he's driving without a valid driver's license, there's probably no insurance on the car. Now, I don't know that for sure, but typically, you know, if you don't have a valid driver's license, it's tough to get insurance on the car. But but he's this is the poster child for this. And because he didn't have a license, yes, he, he will be held somewhat accountable somewhat if you think that a six-year maximum penalty is sufficient for hitting and killing this woman who was doing nothing but, you know, walking on, on the street. But the larger point to it is this is not an unusual situation with people being out on the road in cars without valid driver's licenses. And part of the problem here is that, you know, people just don't care. The, the idea is, well, I had to get my girlfriend to work. What, what was I going to do? So I didn't have a driver's license. Who cares? big deal. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. I think this is a big deal. And I think when and if Tim Michaels is elected governor, one of the very first things they need to do is they need to go to the legislature and they need to say, all right, we're serious about reckless driving. We're serious about people operating vehicles when they're not supposed to. And what that means is we're going to start imposing criminal penalties and significant criminal penalties for people who make the decision to get behind the wheel of a car when they do not have a valid driver's license. Otherwise, it puts all the rest of us in danger, and it makes those of us who play by the rules chumps. You know, the people who you know send in their registration fees and keep their cars registered and keep their licenses intact and pay for insurance on their cars— We're all chumps because there is a certain underclass of individuals that are out there that decide that these rules don't mean anything to them. 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. Is it time to get serious with people who are driving without valid licenses? And I'm talking making these things crimes, not having to wait until, gee, we can only charge the guy because he hit and killed someone. Well, what about the people that, you know, just barely hit, miss someone? And so, you know, don't you think that they're a danger as well? My question would be for this character, you know, my guess is this was not the first time he was driving without a license. This was just the time when he tried to pass a car at a high rate of speed. He hit and killed someone. 855-616-1620. We discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. Uh, one of our, our, our initial batch of texters says something with all due respect I could not disagree with more. Here's what he says. Jeff, 
not excusing the behavior, but if you're a father who is trying to provide for your family, sometimes you have to make tough decisions like driving without a license. The reckless driving was inexcusable. Well, I agree with that, but, but, this, but you are excusing the behavior. I, I'm sorry, if you say... All right, because, and in this case, he was taking his girlfriend to, to work. There's all sorts of ways his girlfriend could get to work. She could take a bus. She could call an Uber. She could maybe drive herself. I don't know. You know, you are excusing, with all due respect, the behavior when you say, well, you're trying to provide for your family. Sometimes you have to make tough decisions like driving without a license. No, that's a tough decision. That's the easy decision. The easy decision is, here, I don't care that I don't have a valid driver's license or it's been suspended or whatever. I don't care about the rules. It's just inconvenient for me to to not drive. And my guess is, like I say, my guess is this guy's been driving all over without a driver's license. It's not just, oh, I've got to get somebody to work, but that's not an excuse. I mean, well, I, you know, she needed to get to work. Well, okay, then maybe you should have thought about that before you lost your driver's license. Maybe you should be working to get your driver's license back. Let's talk to Dean in Milwaukee. Dean, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi there. I've uh, retired from the Milwaukee Police Department after 32 years, and I can tell you right now that the judges do not take driving without a license seriously. They refuse to impose meaningful sentences. Besides that, the first violation is only a civil forfeiture. Right. It's not a crime. The legislature needs to make it a crime. Yep. And because the judges have no backbones, they need to impose mandatory minimum sentencing whether that's to the House of Correction or a monetary fine. Yep. But until that happens, nothing will change. Dean, why do you think the judges don't take it seriously? I really don't know. I, I, I Probably because of the volume of these cases. Yeah. There are thousands of them, tens of thousands. Yeah. And um, they don't want to. De- they don't want to deal with these. So, so, it, so it's ha- that was going to be my next question. I mean, you know, you, you said you, you, you did, you know, you're, you're a police officer for, for years and years uh, of traffic stops. Could you give me just a, a rough idea, ballpark, uh, the number of stops you make? What percentage of people do you stop that don't have valid? Did, did you stop that didn't have valid licenses? Well, I've been off the street for a long time, but I would say that when I was on the street, uh, probably about forty um, percent. Yeah, I, I, that would be about mine. If I had to guess, I would guess somewhere between forty and fifty percent you know, of people who, whatever reasons, don't have valid licenses. And that tells me that you're exactly right because people don't think anything. Of, it's inconvenient. I, I want to drive, so I don't have a valid driver's license. What do I care? I'm just going to get behind the wheel of the car. Well, let me put to you a higher case. Way back when, when I was in District 3, I was in court with a guy that was driving after revocation. The judge told him, I'm going to adjourn this case, but in the meantime, you cannot drive a car. Do not even think about driving a car. And then we walk out. I go back to my car in the garage and uh, the PAB, and I'm going to go to District 3. I'm on 27th and Cherry. I'm stopped for a red light. And I can't believe it. Here's the guy right next to me in a car driving. So I, uh, I motion to him to pull over. He pulls over. Um, I uh, arrest him, cuff him, and take him to, to the station where I start my tour of duty. Right. <laughs> this is like maybe 20 minutes after the judge told him, you're driving after revocation. And that was a mandatory jail sentence at the time. Yeah. So... Nobody takes it seriously, certainly not the judges. 
Yeah. No, thanks. For, I, and, I, I, and I'm sure that that's, and I've heard anecdotal stories like that from, from other people in law enforcement. It's one of the frustrations that people just end up driving off. But see, this, this is the deal. It, let, let's, say that, let's say the dean there was a little bit high in the estimate. Let's say that instead of 40%, it's still, it's 30%. Okay. So three out of every 10 people they stop does not have a valid driver's license and is back out on the road driving and this idea that well you know you got to you got to get where you're going or whatever no you you've got to follow the rules and i agree with him completely this needs to be made a crime there needs to be enhanced penalties for this and you need to start doing things like seizing cars and stuff like that cuz otherwise if you just have to wait till the unlicensed driver hits and kills somebody we're really not doing anything to make any of us safer I am really curious about how you're going to feel about this particular story. We've talked in the past about the the fact that in many cases, the medical community has decided to treat parents as if they are going to be suspects. I mean, I, I've told the story before about I, I have a couple friends who had when their, when their kids were small, the kids legitimately they were I don't even know how to describe them as, as accident prone, but they were really active kids who you know, would would have the things that happen to them when you're really active kids. You know, you're 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 running on a playground, you trip and you fall, and, and boom, you break your wrist. Stuff like that. Um, the, the stuff that you know, you would take the kid into the emergency room because you want to make sure that the kid gets treated. And the, the stories I would hear would be kind of like these horror stories where you take the kid into the emergency room and immediately you as the parent are the subject of suspicion. You know, did, did, you, did you do something here? And the kid is separated and asked a whole series of questions about, you know, you know how did, did mommy push you, did daddy push you, those type of things. Now, I appreciate that there are going to be these real instances where there's child abuse that you want to root out. But this idea that when you have some of these like routine falls that kids take, that immediately the default position is, oh, it had to be the parents that were involved in this. I I understand how that can be troubling. But the assumption is in many respects, well, if if the kid has a, a... what we would describe as sort of a typical childhood kind of injury that you get from running around the playground or whatever. It's, it's got to, you know, the prime suspect in this has to be, let's think about the, the parents. And so now you have the medical community that ends up asking all these different questions. And, and in some cases, I, I think maybe, I don't know, put, putting ideas in kids' heads and things like that, which brings me to this story. Um, a panel of medical experts last week recommended for the first time that primary care doctors, so this would be your child's um, you know, physician, primary care doctors screen all children ages 8 to 18 for anxiety. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, a volunteer panel of experts, reaffirmed its position that all persons, all adolescents, starting at the age of 12, should be screened for depression. In making its recommendations, the task force hopes to reduce the number of children with mental health conditions who go undetected. And then it says, okay, well, right now, the, you know, obviously, if, if you have a child that presents and show signs of anxiety or depression or, or whatever, well, then, you know, the, you prescribe treatment for it. This, this doesn't change that. But this says what we want to do is we want to have physicians now screen all young people who are not presenting with signs or symptoms of anxiety 
or depression at the time they come to their primary care physician for a visit. Several uh, different questionnaires and surveys can be used to screen patients for anxiety and depression. They vary in length and scope. So the idea is when you bring your otherwise healthy child in for his or her annual checkup at the age of like eight years old, now they're going to be subjected to a a questionnaire um, put forth trying to determine if they are depressed or they are anxious. Now, I I guess I'd start this by saying, show me a kid somewhere who's not depressed from time to time. Show me a kid from time to time who isn't anxious at, at some point in time. And I guess my question is, from a perspective of the parents, this we're not talking about a situation where the child has exhibited um, a, an indication that they're depressed or they're anxious. That This isn't that. This is an otherwise healthy, normal, happy child. Now the recommendation is you're going to screen them to see if they're anxious. You're going to screen them to see if they might be depressed, and then presumably, I don't know, put them on medication or whatever. Our number is 855 616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Okay, parents out there, the idea of mandatory screening for your otherwise healthy children, or again, not talking about kids who have showed signs of anxiety or depression or things like that, but your otherwise healthy children who probably at the age of eight or nine don't know, have no clue what depression is, have no clue what anxiety is, and don't experience that in any sort of, you know, meaningful fashion, but now they're going to have to go through a screening to determine if they might have this sort of hidden disorder. 855-616-1620, that's the WTMJ talk and text line. All right, is this this necessary to put all kids through this in an effort to try to say, well, okay, maybe there's some kid who, at the age of eight, who has some undetected anxiety um, that we need to, to root out. Do you need to do that, or is it best to say, okay, my child's showing some signs of anxiety or depression or whatever, now let's deal with it. Do you need to test everybody? Should this be a mandatory thing for all pediatricians starting at the age of 8? 855-616-1620, we discuss. Okay, so this is the proposal that's out there. A bunch of physicians are saying what we need to do is starting at the age of 8, We need to screen, pediatricians need to screen every child that comes in for their physical for anxiety and then depression. Not just the kids that show any sort of symptoms, but they need to be screened for that. Now, a lot of parents are saying, wait, wait a second. You know, what? Why would we do this? Because what, what kid, seriously, what eight-year-old kid or nine-year-old kid isn't depressed at some point in time or isn't sad at some point in time or isn't anxious about something from some point at some point in time? So, I mean, I'm wondering, is this the idea where we're now going to create this entire nation of people who are diagnosed at the age of eight or nine as being, oh, you're anxious or, oh, you're depressed and here, have a Xanax or whatever that's going to be? Uh, it's one thing if somebody is showing symptoms. Obviously, that's the case. But otherwise, healthy kids, can you imagine, you know, what the questionnaire would be? Well, do you ever feel sad? Well, of course you feel sad. We all feel sad. One of my texters is saying, I'm 60 years old. I'm working in the rain now. I feel sad. Everybody feels sad. And this isn't about trying to get kids who need it mental health and mental health help. It's about taking otherwise 
healthy children who it would never occur to them to feel that they need treatment for depression or anxiety and ask them a series of questions that, frankly, they probably don't even understand. Um, You know, no question about this. Jeff, um, children in communist countries are questioned during their youth to see if their parents are teaching anti-communism. Well, my government will not mandate the raising of my children. Well, it's not a question of that. Um, You know, no question about that. And so if you're showing signs, that's, that's great. I don't have an issue about this. But this idea that we are now going to do it for all the children that are out there because there might be this kid here or there that you miss. All right, 855-616-1620. Let's start with Julie in Plymouth. Hi, Julie. Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I could not disagree with you more about your stance on this. Um, I think for you to portray it as, oh, you know, maybe one or two kids out of a million or whatever might have something wrong is really short-sighted and unfair. Um Screening, for one thing, is not diagnosis, and it's not ever that a physician or a practitioner would screen somebody and say, oh, yeah, that's it, you, you have depression. It's not that at all. It's to, it's to just present a fair model of trying to intercept, you know, the, the kid that might need some help. Before they sh- before maybe they they even can articulate what's going on, I don't know why you're portraying this as such an imposition. Well, because it is an imposition. Because now we're going to do this for every child. We're, not. It, we're going to do this for e- every child that goes in to be examined is now going to be put through these screening questionnaires with the idea to try to determine if there's some. Uh, and again, I go back to this idea that the whole idea, Julie. I mean, every kid is depressed. Every kid has anxiety. No. Are we going to create an entire universe of everybody that gets diagnosed and here's your Xanax? No, that's not at all what happens. And I think that's such an unfair way to portray it. Now you keep saying it's that, but tell me why. Imposition. It is an imposition. Be- because it's, why? It's probably 10 questions. Um, you know, I mean, it, I don't think you understand at all what goes on with kids who are undiagnosed or that don't ever get the opportunity um, to talk to something about this. And I feel like you're getting, you're sort of coming from, well, if a kid's not depressed, well, this is, this might make them think they're depressed. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. I mean, yeah, I I do think there, no, I do think there's, I think there's a very suggestive element to this because you're going to have otherwise normal kids and you're going to ask them about anxiety and you're going to ask them about depression. And most of the kids aren't going to know anything about that. No, Joe, I completely disagree. That's right, because you, because the questionnaire is not, are you depressed? No, the questionnaires, and you should really look up um, what questions are asked on a questionnaire like this, because as a nurse, I've done many, many, many screenings, and the questions are not, are you depressed? On eight-year-olds? On, on eight-year-olds? Jeff. On eight-year-olds? Why are you so... Why are on eight-year-olds? So my question was simple. This. You said you've done many, many screenings. You've done them on eight-year-olds? No, I okay. haven't. Okay. But I've seen... But I have seen the outcomes of kids 
who are never treated and who and, are never screened. And it's just... See, and nobody's talking... See, Julie, like no, Julie, I'm sorry. Thanks. Julie, I'm not talking about not providing kids who have symptoms with treatment and with screening and all those different types of things. I'm the guy that looks at these school shooting situations and see that you have all these red flags that are out there, that you have these kids that are acting out and people ignore this. So, I mean, I'm not against this idea of psychological testing or treatment or things like that. I I think there's clearly a mental health element that's out there. But in almost all of the cases that we see, there's all the breadcrumbs that are there. It is very, very clear from the way the kids have behaved. I'm just saying this idea in an effort to try to root out that one kid who might be, okay, the, the school shooter that we want to identify, that we're now going to have, you know, every kid who goes in, they're now going to have to be screened at the age of eight for anxiety. I'd, I'd love to see, you're exactly right. Matter of fact, these physicians, they're not even making recommendations as to what the particular questionnaire would be because there's some that are really intrusive and there's some that are a couple of questions. But I guess the, the point is, why, what are we trying to accomplish with these questions when you are asking them to otherwise healthy, happy, normal, adjusted children who don't have any of these underlying issues? Now, once a kid starts acting out, there is no question about it. If the kid is starting to exhibit signs of anxiety, but I, again, I would argue that all of us have anxiety or depression or whatever, no problem at all. Get them all the help that they need. Get them that sort of intervention. This is this question. It really does seem to me that you're out there looking to try to find and category an entire class of people as being depressed or anxious or whatever, when the truth is maybe they're just really kind of normal kids. Okay, let me give you two texts on this, and we're getting swamped with people all over the map. Jeff, I agree with you on anxiety anxiety screening. It is very suggestive to a child. My daughter went through this. She uses the anxiety as an excuse for everything now. And one of our other texters says, Our teenage daughter appeared to be very happy, had good grades and everything, and still wanted to kill herself. So you can't go off the how a child appears if you don't really know what's going on on the inside. Well, please understand, if obviously at some point in time— you know, it came out that the, their daughter wanted to kill herself. Okay, there, there's going to be signs and symptoms along the way, and at that point in time, you get them in. You get them the, the help you need. I am talking about this generalized notion, which we've never done before, that every child starting at the age of 8 needs to be screened for anxiety, and every child at the age of 12 needs to be screened for depression. And I will tell you, I do think that there is an element that is very suggestive to this. Nobody is arguing that anybody that shows signs and symptoms, you know, shouldn't be getting the treatment. And again, I'm a big advocate for that. You look at what goes on in, again, the school shooting things. It's very been very, very apparent that you had kids that needed a lot of treatment and they needed the help and they didn't get it. That's isn't that where we need to be concentrating instead of trying to figure out whether or not you've got, I don't know, a 12 year old or a nine year old who might be feeling anxious well, all nine-year-olds are going to feel anxious, aren't they? I mean, think back to when you were nine. I, I think everybody's going to, I think, turn, determine, well, do you ever feel nervous at some point in time? Do you ever feel anxious? Everybody's going to feel anxious at some point in time. The question is whether this rises to the level of needing some sort of mental health intervention. Well, in any event, it'll be curious to see whether this is adopted or not. It was a recommendation. Um, Be interested to see, again, whether or not this is pushed 
through. And nobody is arguing that anybody who needs and exhibits any sort of sign of mental health stuff shouldn't get the treatment they need. I would say the better thing to do is to concentrate on the people that are showing that they have the mental health uh, problems. Get them the health they need. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Well, the um, the circus that has been the Daryl Brooks Jr. trial is winding down, but not without numerous incidents. Um, today is the day where the, the judge is going to give jury instructions to the jurors, and because there's so many counts involved, Jury instructions are always a a tedious sort of situation. The judge sits there, and sometimes they give the jurors copies of the instructions to read along with. Otherwise, she is just instructing them on the different elements of the offenses and things like that. But because there are so many charges involved, um, what's happening here is that they're estimating that the, the jury instructions might, in and of themselves, take five to six hours to read. And can you imagine sitting in that jury box after all the, the shenanigans and stuff and having to listen to instructions for five or six hours? And then after that, the prosecution will give its closing argument. And then after that, Daryl Brooks will have won his chance to uh, address the jury. And then since the prosecution has the burden of proof, they will have their rebuttal. And then the case will go to the jury. The jurors were told to bring their overnight bags um, along with them with the idea that if they can get through closing arguments, um, they'll they'll be sequestered starting tonight. But it's been it's just been a, a jury, uh, just been a circus. I mean, here's the way Fox six is reporting it. Before the jury could be brought into the courtroom, Brooks argued with the judge about matters such as subject matter jurisdiction and other evidence. The judge said she was not going to have this discussion or debate. That opportunity is closed for you, sir. Judge Doro then warned Brooks if he starts talking about subject matter jurisdiction in front of the jury, she will excuse the jurors and Brooks will be sent to the adjacent courtroom. At that point, the judge took a five-minute break. Just as the jury was being brought into the courtroom after the break, Brooks began asking questions of Judge Doro once again. She has shown just incredible patience during this. The judge immediately sent the jury back out of the courtroom. Judge Doro asked Brooks if he could not interrupt or make statements during the reading of the jury instructions. Because he would not answer appropriately, the judge ordered Brooks put in the adjacent courtroom so that the jury instructions could be read without interruption. When court returned, Brooks was indeed in the adjacent courtroom, and the judge described for the record why he was there. The jury was present for this. However, during this process, Brooks could be seen waving his arms in the adjacent courtroom. He told bailiffs that he indeed wanted to be present for the reading of the jury instructions, and once again, the judge put the court in brief recess to make this possible. Moments later, with the jury at the courtroom door, the judge ordered a fourth break because Brooks began speaking out of turn once again. A fifth break came a short time after that. Huh. Shortly before 10 a.m., Judge Doro brought the court back to order with the jury present. She began the five- to six-hour process of reading through jury instructions. Brooks was in the adjacent courtroom and muted. Um, following what the judge described as a comfort break, During the reading of the jury instructions, Brooks indicated he would like to return to the main court. However, despite multiple requests by the judge to ensure Brooks would conduct himself in an honorable manner, he did not provide a solid answer. He remained in the adjacent courtroom muted while the remainder of the jury instructions were read aloud. 
Um, shortly after 12.30 p.m., the judge broke for lunch and anticipated returning with some instructions on closing arguments. So, you know, they've been getting, you know, through this entire thing. Um, Brooks has been acting up. The last chance that he will really have to act up in front of the jury will come later on today when he gets a chance to give his closing argument. And you can only imagine what that's going to look like. And then the jury begins deliberations. Um, because there are so many verdicts, I, I wouldn't expect a verdict in, in 10 or 15 minutes or something like that, just because it takes a long time to end up going through that. At the same time, um, I, I don't you know, I, I don't think this is going to be a situation where the jury is going to be out for days and days and days. But I do want to say, regardless of how this turns out, I think the judge in this case has done an absolutely admirable job of trying to keep this, this train on track. And I, I think the prosecution has done an admirable job as well. I can only imagine what it's like to have to deal with a defendant who is is not only dangerous, is, you know, a psychopath— but also is enjoying his 15 minutes of fame and is trying to do everything he can to delay the proceedings because he really has nothing to lose. So this particular situation, I think the judge has done an absolutely great job. And, um, man, I'm telling you, I think if these jurors decide to talk to the media after this and make some public statements, they're going to have some stories to tell. Can you imagine being on the jury during this trial and being brought in and being brought out and being brought in and brought out, and you've got the guy in the other courtroom who's waving his hands and yelling and all those things? It, it's been a circus, but I think Judge Doro has done an outstanding job of getting us to this point. All right. Speaking of legal circuses, remember Brittany Griner? Brittany Griner is the WNBA player who earlier this year, immediately before Putin's invasion of Ukraine, decided that it would be a good idea for her to travel to Russia to play with one of these club teams that she plays with. That That is not an uncommon thing. You have some of these um, female professional basketball players who, in order to supplement their income, you know, once the WNBA season ends, they, they travel overseas and they play for these diff- different club teams in Europe or Asia or, or wherever. Now, in this case, Brittany Griner made the decision to travel through Russia at a particularly um, difficult time. This was in the immediate, what, a couple of weeks before Putin ended up invading Ukraine. And we all know how that's worked out. She also brought along a small quantity of hashish oil. And we're, I think we, we did this at one point in time. The, the quantity she had was like about the size of a nickel. So this is not Midnight Express. The lady is not an international heroin trafficker, but she had it in her luggage. Right. There's no question about it. It was clearly probably a personal use thing. I think her story was she forgot she put it in there, but she brought it in. This was a minor this would might be a minor situation. What would happen in a sane world is that when she was caught going through customs with this, she would be detained. She would be fined. She would be deported. That That's. That's how this should resolve itself in a, in a sane world. Because like I say, she, she's, not, she's not a drug trafficker. And, and to, you know, if you look at this in the light most you know, unfavorable to her, you know, she had this small quantity of stuff, which was clearly a personal use sort of quantity of that, about that. So anyhow, now Putin invades Ukraine. 
she is arrested. And there's no question that she has become a, a political pawn, at least in my opinion. She's tried for, like, drug smuggling. She is convicted. She's sentenced to nine years in a penal colony for possession and smuggling of less than a gram of hashish. Okay? And, look, I, I was a former drug prosecutor. I mean, less than a gram? Come on. So she's sentenced to nine years in a penal colony. The story is back in the news today because um, she had appealed her conviction, and the appeals court had the option of leaving the verdict as it is, reducing the sentence, or overruling it and returning it to the lower court. Um, Earlier today, the appellate court left the sentence in place. So her appeal was denied, and she is now going to begin serving a nine-year drug sentence for less than a gram of hashish oil in a Russian penal colony. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Now, let's understand something at the beginning. This is not justice. It's not. She is being used as—she's clearly, in my opinion, being held as, as a political prisoner. There's been talk of a prisoner swap, you know, the United States producing some guy who's an arms dealer that they refer to as the angel of death, who's serving a 25-year prison sentence for, you know, trying to, you know, sell missiles and stuff that would be used to, you know, kill American civilians. This woman, you know, is caught with um, less than a gram of hashish oil, but now she's been sentenced and her appeal has been, conviction has been affirmed. She's going for nine years in a penal colony unless the U.S. intervenes. My question to you is an open-ended question. What does the government do now? Do you let her sit there? Do you continue trying to, I don't know, do you sweeten the pot in an effort to try to get Russia to let her go? What do we do? And keep in mind, all this is going on at a time where Russian-American relations are probably at one of the lowest points certainly since the end of the Cold War, and maybe you got to go back to, you know, the 1960s, the Cuban Missile Crisis and stuff, to find a time when relations between these two countries were, were worse. 855-616-1620. What do you do with Brittany Griner now that her conviction has been affirmed? We discuss in just a moment. which is the WTMJ talk and text line. So um, Brittany Griner, the female basketball player who got busted in flying into Russia with less than a gram of hashish oil, who has now been convicted of drug smuggling and sentenced to nine years in a Russian penal colony. That conviction has been affirmed as of today. The sentence has been affirmed. So now, uh, unless the United States is able to intervene in some way, shape, or form and offer Russia a suitable deal to let her out, she's, she's going to spend a good deal of time in a Russian penal colony for less than a nickel size worth of hashish oil. Now, on the one hand, this does not strike, this is not justice. Let, let's understand, and this demonstrates, I think, what goes on in Russia. She's being used as a political pawn, and she is. And I'm not, look, she shouldn't have had the hashish oil, but let, let's be reasonable. This was not, this was not, like I say, Midwest Express, Midwest Express. This was not Midnight Express. This was not a heroin smuggling operation. This was somebody who probably shouldn't have gone to Russia in the first place at that time, and certainly shouldn't have had, you you know, a nickel-sized thing of hashish oil with her, but she's not a drug smuggler. She should have been detained, fined, deported, 
End of story. But Russia is now holding on to her. So what's the United States supposed to do? Jeff, if this was not a celebrity, it wouldn't even be news. Uh, don't travel abroad with drugs on you. Well, I, I look, I, I understand that what she did was dumb, but nine years in a Russian penal colony, this is not how this would be handled if it were not for the fact that Russia was trying to make an, not an example of her, but rather trying to use her for political pressure. Jeff, doesn't matter. She broke the law. She needs to sit. Nine years. I mean, nine, nine years. Jeff, I still question her guilt. Um, plead guilty to reduce penalty. Deal not honored. I think Russia is looking for a trade on a public person. Um, you know, she really did it. She's foolish. Um, but I agree with you. I think she is a, a pawn. Um, Jeff, you are thinking rationally when trying to deal with an irrational country. Jeff, if I'm going to a foreign country, you better believe I'm going to double and triple check what I have before going in. She knew what she had. So why should we go out on a limb to help her? This is not the United States. This is Putin's work. Right. Well, that right there is the question. Do we do do we have an obligation to do anything to help her out? Here is somebody, and I think all of us could agree that she's being held unjustly, right? This is this is a nine-year sentence for a small quantity of hashish oil, less than a nickel. That's I think we would all agree that that is out of proportion, and were it not for the fact that Russia is trying to extract some sort of political favors from us, you know very well that that's not how this would otherwise be resolved. Okay, let's start with Gianni in Montello. Gianni, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, Let me preface my thoughts by saying we don't know if Brittany Griner had any illegal substances on her. We're dealing with a terrorist despotic regime that um, can't be trusted. So these could be trumped up charges. And um, where is the evidence? Um, This Putin is looking for something just like this to hold Americans hostage. So number one, I think we, 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 we do our best to get the current hostages, and I believe there's another man there yep. that is being held or is, is, is due. We get them out, we negotiate their release, and then Americans through the State Department announce, or this, this, uh, the Biden administration, that no uh, more Americans should travel to Russia if you mm-hmm. do, you're on your own. And we, we announce, uh, the State Department announces that if you are living there, uh, as a, you're contracted to work there for an yeah. American company, you get out. No more negotiating with this, this man beyond the, the two hostages that are held right now. How much do you give up to get those people out? I mean, do you? Yeah, I think you give up. I think you, I know you were going to ask that, and I think you. I, I think you give up. You you have to trade, but I think you do your best to get um, both of these uh, American citizens out of Russia. And if it means trading uh, a, 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 an arms dealer, I, I think you've probably got to do it. But no more travel there, Jeff. I spent time there, and I I, I have no plans on going back while this man. Uh, this, mm-hmm. this this crazy uh, despot uh-huh. is 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 in charge. No, so, thank, no thanks for the call, Gianni. I, I I understand that, that, but that's that's now the fundamental issue, and and you know very well 
that the, the Russian courts, and I, I say that in the Russian legal system, you know, is clearly under direction and working hand in glove, you know, with, with the government in this regard. Otherwise, you know, a nine-year sentence. And that, that look, this would be a different situation if she was bringing in kilograms of heroin or, or even, like, you know, kilograms of hashish or something, and she was trying to smuggle that in. But that's not what this was. This is a, again, it, imagine, picture a nickel. That's about, that's about the weight of, of the, the hashish oil that she had. Was she dumb for not going through her baggage and making sure that that wasn't in there? Was she arrogant if she knew it was in there and didn't think it would be a big deal? Yeah, all those things. But still, you've got the nine-year situation. Okay, so I think it's, it's fair to say, okay, Jeff, you know, what would you do? And I, I think my answer is you continue to work with diplomacy. There's only so far you can go. I mean, the— in exchange for Brittany Griner and the one other person that the, that Johnny was referring to, you know that they've offered they've offered to release this international arms dealer. I had trouble with that. I mean, I think that that was again a situation where the government was being played. But under the circumstances, I, I at least you put that on the table. If Russia wants more than that, I just don't think you can do it. But I think you need to continue to do everything you can to put pr- international pressure on Russia to try to get them to observe some sense of of justice. And unfortunately, I don't think this is going to happen in the near future. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but I don't think this is going to happen in the near future until we see some resolution of what is going on in Ukraine. And who knows when that is going to be or when Putin leaves power. At some point in time, and maybe it's going to be after Putin leaves power, however he leaves power, there is going to be, from Russia, I firmly believe, an effort for a rapprochement, for, to try to like rejoin the, the civilized nations of, of the world, and, and this will be part of it. Do I think Brittany Griner is going to be, end up serving nine years in a Russian penal colony? I don't think so, and I certainly hope not. Do I think she's going to be there for at least a little while? Unfortunately, yes. One of our texters says, well, why did she go to Russia in the first place? And she went to make money. That's the, the idea. She was playing for some club basketball team in Russia, and they were paying her a bunch of money. And she went there with the idea that she was going to play for the team. Now, she chose to go there a couple months, a couple weeks before Putin got ready to invade Ukraine. That would have, number one, been a red flag to me. And then number two, um, you know, she she had the hashish oil with her. I, and one of our callers was saying, well, maybe there's some questions about whether she had it. I don't think so. I mean, I think she, she had. It's a small personal use quantity, but now it's a mess. Um, Jeff, one of our texters says, it's easy to say don't trade an arms dealer, but if it were one of my uh, children, we would be all for it. Well, that's that's the problem. That's the issue you always have when the question is, do you negotiate with terrorists? You know, when you have when you have somebody who's kidnapped or held hostage or whatever, the, obviously on a personal level, when it's somebody close to you, you say, hey, I, I don't care what we do, we've got to get them back. And I appreciate that. But then there's the big picture that's out there, which is, all right, if you do this now, what is it going to do? Is it going to be open season for you know grabbing other Americans or Europeans off the street and just detaining them in order to get people released? Um, it's just, it's a difficult, there's no, it's a no-win situation. Again, my prediction is she's not going to, she will come back at some point in time, but it might not be for a while. So glad to have you with us. Tomorrow, the final Marquette University Law School poll before the 
November 8th election, election day is two weeks from today, that, that'll drop and we'll offer some comments on it. Uh, the, the general sense, and there's, there's this poll that CNN did which shows Johnson ahead by one and Evers ahead by two. The, the general sense is that is kind of an outlier. Now, I mean, who knows? I, I think, I, I actually think that Johnson is ahead by several more points. And if the Marquette poll comes back and shows the race anything less than three or four points, I think there's going to be something suspect about that. The Evers-Michaels race, I, I think, is just an, an absolute toss-up. Um, and it, it could very well go either way. I think it depends on turnout and things like that. But um, it's there, there will be at least that one more poll. If you, if you do what I do, and I understand there's people who don't believe in polls and certainly understand why that attitude comes after the last five or six years. But if you look at the different polls that are out there in the different states, it, it's very clear that the polls are at least picking up what we would describe as a red wave. Um, you have new polls out today that show Herschel Walker leading in Georgia, and Herschel Walker has been called every name but a child of God down in, in Georgia. But he, at least there's new polls out show that he he is ahead. Um, other races that you thought that there was Republicans had no chance to win before, they're, they're now starting to move ahead. Now, again, a lot can happen in two weeks, and polls can very much be off. But um, given that traditionally, over the last several years, the most polls have have understated Republican turnout. You, you typically like add a couple points, and, and that's where they really are. In a lot, if if that holds true, you are going to see that this red wave that that's out there, and and a lot of it is the economy. That that's just the the bottom line here. I understand that. You know, if you turn on the television, you hear ad after ad after abortion, and I understand there's some people who are very passionate about that, but abortion is like number seven or number eight on voting issues for most people, and crime in the economy is like number one and two, and you don't hear too many Democrats running on crime or the economy right now. A lot can happen over the course of the next two weeks, but at least right now, you're starting to see what is making the making of what we would call a red wave. There's even some states like New York State, where now the, the very, very liberal governor of New York, um, now those polls are closing. Now, I don't really think a Republican can win in New York State. If they do, that would be a huge story. But a race that was perceived to be double digits a month and a half ago is now perceived to be like three or four points, which shows you again this movement that is out there. But we will know two weeks from now, hopefully. All right. I want to completely switch gears here. There, um, One of the things we've talked about before is there's a lot of places that you go to, and I know it is a source of frustration, that do not accept cash. So if, if you want to go to a, a Bucks game at Pfizer Forum, they don't take cash. If you want to go to American Family Field and buy a beer, they don't take cash. Um, I, I believe the same is true at Lambeau Field and all sorts of other places as well. Summerfest was a cashless place. You did not have the choice. You know, you had to have the credit card or the debit card or whatever, or you wouldn't be able to buy things. And we have discussed that before, and I know that that is a source of irritation to me, and I know it's a source of irritation to many of you. One of the various reasons why that is, though, is because fewer and fewer people are, are using cash. Here's, here's the deal, um, and I'm looking at one of the most recent surveys of U.S. adults that are out there. Currently, 41% of Americans say that none of their purchases in a typical week are paid for using cash. None of their purchases— 
four out of ten people, and and this isn't this isn't mandatory. This isn't like you don't have the choice. This is by their own choice. Forty percent of Americans are saying we don't use cash. Now, when they asked the same question four years ago, twenty nine percent said that they didn't use cash. This is now up to forty percent. Um, conversely, the number of Americans who say that all or almost all of their purchases are paid for using cash has decreased. It's about 14% today. So the number of people who exclusively use cash, that's, that's kind of the unicorn. It, it's a little more than one in 10. Now, I'm kind of the middle ground sort of guy. I use my credit cards a lot for a variety of reasons. I do it at the gas pump because it's just easier. You don't have to go in and pay at the pump. You just put the thing in, and, and then you're all set to go. But I still like using cash for smaller sort of purchases, and I always carry at least a little bit of cash with me. On the way home yesterday, I, I, I wanted to get some beer, so I stopped at the liquor store, went in. I could have charged the beer, but I, I just I paid cash for it. I, I will use cash for smaller purchases because I, I just— I don't like charging 8 and $10 on, on a credit card and then having to deal with it. But that is a choice I make. And I understand that more and more people are moving away from that. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. We're not discussing businesses that say we're not taking cash. I'm talking about your decision to not use cash. Have you become one of those people that is now joined the cashless society by choice and just simply said, I'm one of those four out of 10 people. I I don't use cash anymore at all. And if so, why? And if you're not one, why? Are those of us who still use cash for some things, are are we dinosaurs just wrestling around in the mud who, you know, in the next couple of years, it's going to be all credit. And in my case, like I say, I've got credit cards. I'm not anti-credit card. I use credit cards for all sorts of things. At the same time, for small purchases, I I don't want to be charging. I don't want to be charging. You know, a, a six dollar you know coffee and a hot dog. I don't want to put that on my credit card. I want to just pay cash for it and not have to worry about it. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. We discuss in a moment. Everything is touching a nerve today. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. I just ran across this survey that says that about, actually, 41% of Americans say they never use cash, that they're exclusively, you know, using plastic, whether it's debit cards or whatever. Now, I I, I guess I I use both, and I guess I'm not at a point where I'm ready to get rid of of using cash, and, and especially for like smaller purchases, if it if it's ten or fifteen dollars for me, I, I just I, I want to pay for it. I don't want to have it. I don't want to see it on that that credit card bill and stuff. But I understand that I'm I'm foregoing airline miles or cash back or whatever. It's just at a certain point in time, I, I just I, I don't want to use the credit for the smaller purchases. Okay, let's start with Chris in Cedarburg. Chris, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? You a cash Good. gal? Well, you know what? Mm, yeah, I'm all cash. You know what's funny? We we have a small antique business. We are norm. You know, we have our normal jobs, and then we do that uh, antiques on the side. And um, there are a lot of elders and uh, people who want to plunk down their wad of cash to buy <laughs> a let's say a crock or a, a jug or uh, yeah whatever you know a, a ice 
tongs or something. Right. And and we do not bring um, a credit card slide or or cube or whatever to the market. Um, and people will find money if they want to buy something. They will find a check or they will find cash. Go to the ATM. I mean, I'm not going to have any more records of stuff on life in general than we already have. So I'd rather do I'd rather do cash or right. check, and you know, I'm I, it's just not going to happen that way until I'm forced to, to right. do it that way. <laughs> right where there where there's no you options know? at all. Hey, like for your business, if you take credit cards, I assume you have to pay a, a couple percent fee Absolutely. for yeah. Yeah. I get I get a bill from Wisconsin that. You know, uh, tax, which I'm, we pay taxes. Don't don't get me right, wrong. Right. But there's like if I'm if I'm selling a wrench for three dollars to an old farmer, I'm not gonna wait and pay tax. And you know, dude, I'll pay the tax myself or figure it out. But he's gonna get it in a bag and he goes on his way. There's so many other people who um, want to purchase items that want to purchase them and just go. Right. You know, they they don't they don't have the ability or nor do they want to do the um, yeah. the little square or yeah. the debit or that. And, you know, especially if you go to fairs or flea markets like yeah. the flea market in Cedarburg, that it just doesn't happen that yeah. way. No, I'm with so, you. No, no I'm yeah. with you. No, thanks to call Chris, 855-616-1620. Again, I'm not anti-credit card, and believe me, I, I our credit card gets a, a lot of a lot of action. And like I say, I mean, if it's a larger purchase or if it's a convenience purchase, like at the gas pump or something where I don't want to go in and, and, and pay for the thing in advance, it's just like, I'm going to put it in there. I, I will use it. If it's a, if it's a larger deal with like restaurants. Now, one of the things we will do a lot of times at restaurants is we'll, we'll leave the tip in cash, but we'll, you know, pay for it with the credit card. And, but But at the same time, I'm also mindful for these merchants that they are paying a a percentage for that. Let's talk to uh, Linda. Linda, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hello. Hi, Linda. Hi. Um, I prefer to use cash whenever I can because just recently we went out for pizza carryout, and they said, are you paying cash or credit? And my husband asked why, and he said, because we're going to charge you extra 3% if you pay for it with a credit card. And that's what you're finding most places. And I don't see how anyone can go completely cashless, because just like your last caller, there's so many places that still, flea markets, farmer's markets, whatever, uh, markets that only accept cash and don't have the availability of even uh, offering them credit. So I guess people don't make purchases at those kind of places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who, who knows? Thanks for you know. You raise an interesting point, Linda. Thanks for calling. I hadn't I hadn't remembered this, but the the dealer where I, I take my car in to to get serviced, um, you know, and they're very upfront about it. But if you use a credit card, there's a three percent charge. I mean, there's a three percent upcharge on that if you use a debit card or you pay cash or you write a check. Um, then, then there's no fee for that. So I, I tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm always kind of that's in the back of my mind. And I've the last couple of times it's either been a debit card or I've I've actually pulled out and paid cash for the oil change or whatever. Let's talk to because I'm not paying three percent for the pleasure or the privilege of charging it when I can pay cash. Julie in Kenosha. Hi, Julie. You're on WTMJ. Yeah. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? Are you a cash gal? Well, I was up until I was about 35. Okay. And that's when I got my first credit card. 
And I have never, ever had a balance on a credit card, ever, <laughs> because my dad huh. taught me that cash is king. Right. He taught me that cash is king. Right. But um, I do like the credit card statement itemizes my purchases. Right. So gas, snacks, restaurant, entertainment, and then I can budget a little bit better, and I do enjoy that. And I have to be honest, I'm kind of getting to the point where I feel like cash and coins are a little bit dirty. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what that is about. <laughs> okay, so let, okay, so let's yeah. say you you stop at uh, you stop at a quick trip, okay? And you're going to put gas in your car, and so you you put the credit card in, you're filling up the gas, you you go in and you buy a, a cup of coffee and a donut for I don't know, two bucks or whatever that would be. You're going to charge that two bucks as well. You're not going to just pull out two dollars or two fifty or whatever and give them cash. You're going to put that on your credit card as well. I absolutely am. Okay. I have I have charged as low. This is kind of embarrassing, but I've charged as low as eighty nine cents on my credit card. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if, if Julie, if they're going to take it, you know, that, that go with God. I, I think that's great. It's just, see, I just wouldn't, and maybe it's just a psychological thing. I just, I don't, I don't want to see that. I, I run up enough in credit card charges in a given month that I, I don't, I don't want to see those 80. I just want to, if I want a bad pack of gum, I just want to pay for it and not have to think about it ever again. But if it works for you, that that's great. Now, thanks for calling. And by the way, Julie, you are... That's what I thought was so interesting about this topic. You are the growing majority of people. Like I say, that number just in the last, what was my number? Just in the last couple of years, um, it's gone from 2018, they said about 30% of the people said they didn't use cash. Now it's up to 41% in just a couple of years. Well, at that pace, you know, pretty soon the people who never use cash are going to be in the majority. I, I acknowledge that. Uh, Jane in Verona. Jane, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hello. Hi, Jane. Um, okay, so all the reasons to use cash are, first, it's easy, and I'm a cash person. But, you know, when you do credit cards, you're, every time you swipe that thing, your information gets out there. Mm-hmm. And if you uh, tip in a restaurant with just with uh, cash, then it never gets reported to Social Security. Mm-hmm. It, this is kind of going back and forth. And you can earn your points when you use your credit card. Right. And um, some businesses, like you guys were saying before, you have to pay to um, the 3% or whatever they were saying. You know, they you may not have to pay that sometimes, but the business sure. itself has to. Yeah, one way or the other, somebody's paying for it. Yep, one way or the other, somebody's paying. Yep. Exactly. Isn't that, the, isn't that the truth with everything? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess uh, cash is the way to go because then you don't overspend. If you don't have it in your pocket, you don't spend it. Well, you know, Jane, thanks for the call. That, that is, and that was, what was, uh, was the, the, the guy, Dave Ramsey, that was kind of always his advice for um, if, if people are really on a budget and you're trying to stick to that budget, that's one of the things you do. You just, just don't use the credit card stuff. What you do is you just, okay, this is, I, this is how much I'm going to allot myself in a given week, whatever that number is, and you put it in the envelope, and you put the cash in the envelope, and that's that's it. Now, I, I've you know, I never had that much discipline or needed that much discipline or got into that situation with this. But but again, the the bottom line of this is it, it's 
it's it's interesting to me because, like I say, and that's what I thought was so intriguing, whenever you have these events, whether it's American Family Field or Summerfest or whatever, and they, they are cashless, a lot of us don't like that. Some people say they don't go because they're cashless. Now, I, I don't particularly like it because if I'm at Summerfest and I'm going to buy two beers, I just as soon pull out the $20 and here, give me the two beers and, and then you're, you're done with this. I don't want to fool around with the credit cards and all, but it's not going to stop me from getting those beers if I'm down at Summerfest. I mean, I'm willing to use the credit cards if I have to. It's not my preference. But more and more people are saying, hey, you know, even if you took cash, we don't care. Hi, Jeff. I'm 56 years old. My daughter is 24. She says cash is old people's money. Laugh out loud. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's okay. Then then next time she comes to you and asks for an allowance or a loan or something, my advice would be say, oh, you don't want to have to worry about any of these old people's money. We're going to take a quick break. Got a lot of great stuff coming up in the 2 o'clock hour of the program. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue. It's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. All right. Hate to say I told you so. Well, I don't hate to say I told you so. I told you so on this one. One of the the things you notice is if you look at at politics and the way elected officials operate, and this, this isn't a Republican and Democrat thing. It's not a conservative and liberal thing. It's something that you just notice is that when... When politicians or elected officials want to talk about or propose budget cuts, for, for example, when, when they want to try to figure out a way to convince taxpayers to give them more money, what they always try to do is they try to find the thing that is going to make the biggest headlines. I mean, you saw this – we went through a period of time a few years back where you saw this with almost every school referendum that was out there. Um, and they did this in Racine. Racine, they kept asking for school referendums. They kept getting voted down. So finally, the people behind the school referendum in Racine said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to say that if this referendum does not pass, we're going to have to get rid of extracurricular sports. We're going to have to get rid of extracurricular activities. They never said, hey, if this doesn't pass, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to get rid of a three or four mid-level bureaucrats who are making 120 grand a year because if they said we're going to get rid of three or four mid-level bureaucrats who are making 120 grand a year, most people would say, yeah, you, you go, guy. So they, they don't do that. So it's, if we, this doesn't pass, we're getting rid of sports. And then everybody freaks out. Oh, we don't want to get rid of sports. And so it's a way of getting the referendum to pass. This is, it's an old trick that gets used on a regular basis. Well, in the city of Milwaukee, and, you know, we, we had a news report about this. Don't get me wrong. The city of Milwaukee is is heading off a fiscal cliff. Um, if there's anybody, I'll use another um, a cliche. If there's anybody that thinks that there's light at the end of the tunnel, that's not light at the end of the tunnel. That's a train coming the other way. Between, you know, pension costs and increasing salaries and... Um, various limits as to how much money they can raise, and and a limit that the taxpayers have in the city of Milwaukee as to what they're willing to pay. You you have you, you know it's a fiscal cliff, and they're getting ready to head over it. So I, I don't mean to downplay this, but in, in the last budget, the, the mayor comes out and, and his idea is he doesn't say 
okay, we're going to have to make cuts, and what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of some mid-level bureaucrats in uh, the Department of Public Works, and we're going to get rid of a couple spokespeople in, in our office and things like that. No, he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the fire department, we're going to cut the police department, and we're going to cut the libraries. Arguably the three most visible things in the city of Milwaukee. And by doing that, you, you kind of get the headlines. Oh, this is where we're going to cut. And then people get all upset and they say, hey, we use our public libraries and they have all these huge protests and stuff. And I, I predicted at the time when this first came out is that don't worry, sports fans. What's going to happen is is they're going to find the money somewhere for these various programs because, you know, once the shock value gets out, they recognize that you, you, you can only cut public safety so far, especially given, you know, what's going on around here. And, and that includes the fire and it includes the, the police departments and things like that. And the libraries are a very, very visible thing that's out there. So here is the follow-up. The mayor's um, plan to cut the um, library and the fire department well, well, never mind. Um, there was an amendment that was passed by the Common Council yesterday, a budget amendment that essentially says that what they're going to do is they're going to restore the money to the fire department. They're going to restore the money to the, the library. So you're not going to have these cuts. And what are they going to do? Well, they're going to um, shift money. The, much of the funding would come from reprogramming allocations for the city's Federal American Rescue Plan Act, the grant. So they're going to take some federal money that was going to be used for other things, and what they're going to do is they're going to use it to, to fund the restoration of the, the service cuts. So it, it's, again, this, this is not necessarily a surprise that this ended up happening, but of course you got the headline saying, oh, you've got to watch out because we're going to end up cutting these things. The interesting thing to me that came out of this budget committee hearing is one of the Milwaukee aldermen, Scott Spiker, he said, here's what I think we should do. He said, "Um, you know, I want to take a million dollars budgeted to pay for the streetcar operator and reallocate it to the Department of Public Works high-impact paving program. The proposal would allow miles of additional streets to be repaved which replaces the top layer of asphalt and extends street life by approximately 10 years. So by taking a million dollars out of the operating budget that, again, we're we're paying for, if you're a city of Milwaukee taxpayer you're paying for, the cut would result in approximately 25% reduction in streetcar service. So you could get better roads, you know, get rid of some of the giant potholes, repave the stuff, and and you'd get 25% fewer streetcar operators. So the, the... the, the air trolley, and I call it an air trolley because a lot of times you look at Tom's trolley folly, the streetcar, and it's carrying air. You know, you, you rarely see many passengers. Now, I'm not saying never, but you rarely see many passengers that are on this. So I guess the question becomes, if you took a million dollars and used it to improve the quality of the roads and you cut the streetcar schedule by, by 25%, would, would anybody notice and to me, that might be the most obvious question that I've asked. It's obviously a rhetorical question today because, you know, yeah, it's not doing away with the streetcar entirely, 
but it's saying, okay, we're, we're going to run it less often, which means th- those empty trolleys, well, they're, they're going to run less often. Hey, actually, maybe if you, if you run them a little bit less often, maybe the chance of at least getting two or three people on them would go up. So anyhow, that's one of the ideas. Let's take it, take a million dollars, take it from streetcar operation and use it to actually I- improve the quality of the streets around the city. Now that is thinking outside the box. When we come back, well, lots of stuff on the program I still want to talk to you about, including a horrible, horrible, senseless tragedy that, again, it's impossible to make sense of, but we're going to try to do it. Stick around. All right, two weeks ago, you remember the story, and, and there, there's so many of these brutal crimes that are out there that I, I think it, we, all, we all become numb to them, but, but this was one that I think it not only captured the attention of everybody around here, but it also it, it, it got attention you know, nationwide. It was the story of the woman who was unloading her groceries um, with her, her kid, her 12-year-old girl, and there were some people— Across the the street, at, at the, I mean, the way the story was emerging was at like this vacant house that was on the other side of the alley, and there was an exchange of words or whatever. And one of the individuals pulls out a gun and starts shooting. And next thing you know, the the woman is wounded, but the twelve year old girl is murdered, just in cold blood, murdered. You know, as she's helping, you know, line up, helping bring in groceries. And one of the things that was particularly frustrating to me, and we discussed this, was the fact that at least up until yesterday, the, the, the shooters had not been identified. And, and these, were people, these were people that hung out in the neighborhood. There was no question in my mind that people knew who these were. And, and yet, even though they'd murdered a 12-year-old girl, there were people that were unwilling to come forward and identify, give the authorities the evidence they need in order to issue charges. And yet, a 12-year-old girl that was murdered. Well, okay, that all changed yesterday because the district attorney's office issued charges— for first-degree reckless homicide and first-degree recklessly endangering safety, um, and they have made an arrest. Apparently, they finally got the information to get an arrest warrant yesterday, and then they went out and they promptly found the guy and they arrested him. Well, here's the story. The person who's been charged, 17 years old. Journal Sentinel says 17-year-old Milwaukee boy, I think I might say 17-year-old Milwaukee man, has been charged in the shooting death of the 12-year-old. His name is Benjamin N. Garrett, um, now been charged with the death of 12-year-old Olivia Schultz. According to the criminal complaint, the family had returned home from grocery shopping, parked in an alley behind their home, when two young masked males approached as if they were looking for something. One of the males was wearing a black surgical mask, while the other was wearing a black ski mask. Huh. Huh. Why do I think it wasn't for concerns about COVID? Wilson, that would be the mother, Wilson's husband stared at the males, prompting the male who was wearing the surgical mask to say, can I get my face back? I don't even know what that means. And then pulled his mask down, allowing family members to see his face. When her husband carried a grocery bag into the house, the suspect pulled out a gun. 
the mother, that's Wilson, told him, don't do anything because it's not going to be worth it. The males continued walking, and the family, along with her children, continued to help unload the vehicle. Okay, so you got these two punks that are in this alley. They're walking through. They're, they're masked, and apparently they, they had been around before. That's what the earlier comments were. So they're kind of known to the area, and they get stared at, and then this is the response. The one guy pulls down the mask. See? I, still, I don't even understand. What, can I get my face back? But anyhow, man, the males continued walking, and the family, along with the children, continued to help unload the vehicle. When the males were about four houses away, the mother said the person that she interacted with began to shoot at her and her family. Began to shoot at her and her family. As she turned to take cover, she was shot in the back. Olivia, that's the 12-year-old girl, was shot and killed in the incident. Olivia's sister, who had also seen the face of the male, identified him as Garrett based on Facebook photos. He was uh, taken into police custody last night. I assume that they're still looking for the other thug that was with them. But this, this is a 17-year-old kid who decides in cold blood that he's just going to start opening fire, he kills a 12-year-old. Another person spoke with police on October 11th, indicated they saw a Facebook photo of the person who fired the shots. Authorities say they used this photo in social media to identify Benjamin Garrett, the defendant. So you've got a 17-year-old kid who's now in custody for firing indiscriminately and killing a 12-year-old girl. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. This is another one of these things, which is just so incredibly senseless. And and there's just no other... There's no other way to describe it. I mean, I, I understand some people say, well, you know, you refer to Milwaukee as the wild, wild west. And I would say, no, this type of stuff did not happen in the wild, wild west. At least in that situation, it was the two guys with the guns strapped on their, around their hips who, you know, face down at high noon. And, and you had at least a fair chance. This is, this is a 12-year-old kid who is unloading groceries who, who gets shot and killed because— I don't know, maybe somebody—I don't know what could have been going through the mind of the 17-year-old other than the fact that perhaps he felt disrespected because this family stared at these guys as they're wearing masks walking through the alley. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What what could have provoked this? And and that's—it's kind of a why and it's an open-ended question because I, I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer as to why— a 17-year-old just pulls out a gun under circumstances like this and, and starts opening fire. This isn't a gang battle, you know, where you, you know, you're, you're getting into a gunfight. This isn't even, gee, an armed robbery where the police, you know, pull up. This is almost like a, a semi-execution-style slaying of, of a defenseless woman, and in this case, the 12-year-old daughter. 855-616-1620. What what could have possibly motivated the 17-year-old to open fire under these circumstances and murder a 12-year-old girl? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Okay. See, I just learned something. One of our texters says, get your face back. See, that's what the, the, the 17-year-old that murdered the 12-year-old, 
Apparently, her father and mother, as they're walking through this alley and they're wearing masks, one has a ski mask on, the other has a black surgical mask on. And, and the mother had made statements like this before. I don't think it's contained in the criminal complaint, but that, that these were part of a group of people who had been like hanging out at this vacant house on the other side of the alley and stolen cars and things like that. So the 17-year-old, the shooter, apparently says that, um, can I get my face back? He then pulled down his mask and revealed his face. All right, one of our texters says, get your face back means when you are staring at somebody and they consider themselves disrespected because you're staring at them. That's what that means. Okay, makes no sense to me, but that's on the mean streets of Milwaukee. That is apparently the justification for pulling out a gun and murdering a 12-year-old. Jeff, this story strikes fear in my heart. The only thing I can say is I think we have to get a hold of punishing criminals so that they think twice, and even more importantly, we have to get a hold of all these young people that are actually trying to, you know, do various sorts of of crimes. Um, I just, I I mean, I'm... It just this is just such an incredibly senseless thing. And like I say, I'm not condoning the the, the shootings that, that go on, but sometimes it's like, okay, we, we've gotten into this gun battle, and it's these gangs that are shooting at it or whatever. This is a defenseless 12-year-old girl, and this 17-year-old thug just decides to open up on this. Jeff, how much do you want to bet that the accused has a long record of juvenile crimes escalating in seriousness but not considered dangerous nor punished adequately until the inevitable tragedy? That's, that is going to be the interesting follow-up, which will be, all right, what, what has this guy been through the juvenile justice system? Now, I want to say, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm willing to bet that the answer to that question is yes. Because I don't think you just wake up one day and say, gee, today the day is the day I'm going to put on my black ski mask or my black surgical mask, grab my loaded gun at the age of 17, and wander down through the alley. And then when somebody upsets me because they're looking at me, I'm going to pull my gun out and I'm going to start shooting and I'm going to kill a 12-year-old girl. Now, it could be that this is somebody who has no contact with the juvenile justice system, and I say that in quotation marks, no contact with the juvenile justice system at all. On the other hand, my guess is there probably is a lengthy record, because I just don't think you wake up one morning and say, this is how I'm going to behave. And I wouldn't be surprised if the texter is absolutely right. Numerous contacts with the juvenile justice system, never treated seriously, and now the guy will be in prison for the next several decades, hopefully. But the bottom line is, a 12-year-old girl is dead. A 12-year-old girl is dead, and this kind of stuff happens on a daily basis, and it's unacceptable. You were talking about early voting. See, I've got my, I've got my, I voted. Sticker. You voted already. I voted first thing. That, well, the polls opened up at eight. My wife and I were there about nine o'clock, and so that, that's done. Anyone else there? Oh yeah. There, matter of fact, we we saw a whole bunch of people we knew. It's kind of like old home week there, and some people we're going out to dinner with tomorrow night. Uh, Sue was there. And it was, yeah, it was. There were. I mean, I wouldn't. There were. I would say. A dozen people or so. That's you not know? bad. No, I mean this is the For first a rainy Tuesday morning, right? The fr- and this is the first day. Mm-hmm. This is like in that first hour and stuff. So, and it, it for people who have never done that before, it, it's incredibly easy. It, it's the way to go. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I. There is. I was talking about this yesterday. There is something about the, the whole civic thing of you know getting together on election day and standing in line you know with your fellow citizens to cast the vote and i i do like getting that ballot and then putting it in the machine and you hear that noise but 
but this is the way to go. You know, it's, you, know you, you show up, they had three election workers there. You go up, you give them their name, they've got it in the computer, you show them your photo ID, they give you the ballot, they give you the envelope, you go over, you fill it out, and then take it back. Somebody looks at it to make sure it's all, the envelope is filled out properly, and boom, it, the whole thing takes just a couple minutes. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're, if you're one of the people that doesn't normally vote because you're busy on election day or something like that, I, I think I voted early like four elections ago for the first time ever, and I was like, oh my, this is the oh, way yeah. to do it. You know, you can, it takes five minutes, you're in and out, it's, it's wonderful. So, yeah. and, and you know it's done. I mean, and, and again, yeah. I, whenever I say this, I always I, I always get people who say, oh, the post office is great. And, and this is a knock on the post office and stuff, but you know you know the ballot has been mm-hmm. delivered. You, you don't have to worry. And, and I know there's ways you can check to see if it's been done and stuff, but you, you know it's not going to get lost somewhere. You know, I saw her, she took it, she put it in the box. And you so got it's your taken sticker. care of. And I've got the my sticker. The important stuff. I got the I yeah. voted sticker. That was very cool because I think last time I did it, they didn't have the I voted stickers, and I felt a little bit cheated. So supply chain. I'm... It was supply chain issue with the voting stickers. Really? Yeah. Yes, sir. Huh. Well, I've got that. So the bottom line is early voting, early early in-person absentee voting. It's a mouthful to say. It has started today. Um, go out and do it. I, I did it at work. Just make sure you end up voting and, you know, check your polling place for the hours. It varies a little bit from community to community. When we come back, all right, inflation. Well, now it's really hitting home. I will tell you the story and we will discuss. Don't you go anywhere. One of our texters says, you were talking about the guy, you, you bet he has a juvenile record. What does having a juvenile record have to do with anything? I have an extensive juvenile record, but have not committed any crime for over 15 years since the last time I was released from custody. To which my response was, what does having a juvenile record have to do with everything? Anything? you got to be kidding. My guess is that this 17-year-old who murdered the 12-year-old has an increasingly serious juvenile record that resulted in little or no punishment, thereby encouraging him to act in an increasingly antisocial manner. What does what does the fact that the guy has a lengthy criminal record have to do with the fact that he committed a crime? What does the fact that he has a juvenile record, if that's the case, but that's what you see all the time that's out there, you know, again, small crimes leading to larger crimes, leading to larger crimes. I used to see that all the time when I was a federal prosecutor. I've told that story. You know, you'd, you would... You would get somebody's. You would get somebody's in the pretrial report. They'd go through their criminal record, and in many cases, it was pages and pages long. And it started out with small stuff, and nobody was held accountable. And then it was increasingly, you know, more significant stuff, and that was probation or double secret probation. And they just they just never got the idea that you're not supposed to be committing crimes. And then sooner or later, they did something like really bad, and then they were going to be going to prison for twenty or thirty years. And I have always believed that maybe, just maybe, if you intervene early and you teach people that there are going to be consequences, some of the people will get the idea that, hey, okay, after I've been given, you know, if, if I'm going to be held accountable for stealing cars, well, okay, maybe it's not a good idea to go out and then carjack somebody. I'm just just saying, that's me. Okay, now, yesterday, this was, I, I, and I can just always tell from the number of texts we get and the number of emails I get and things like that. Yesterday, during this segment of the program, we did one of those topics which, you know, it's, it's the dinner table conversation. Did you hear the Wagner show today? Did you hear Jeff was talking about, and, and yesterday we were talking about Halloween, and it was the, the big house, the, the big candy bar house, you know, and they were the place that 
you would always go in the neighborhood when you were trick-or-treating, and they would have the, the full-size Kit Kat bars or the full-size Butterfingers, the, you know, the, the, the big candy bars. And I, it just brought back memories, and we got the, this huge response to that. Well, I've got another Halloween-related conversation that I want to have. The Halloween, I, I think, and like I said, in, in the Wagner household back when I lived in Whitefish Bay, Halloween was a big deal. You know, we, we went out and we, we were the big candy bar house. We, we just, we, we did it, and it was just, it was kind of fun. And my late wife would sit on the porch, and she'd have this big, and the kids would come up, and you had a little kid, you had older kids. It, it was just kind of a cool thing. Where I live now, we don't, we don't get trick-or-treaters. It's just not, it's not conducive, and there's not families that live nearby or anything like that. So the first year, I think, we were in our new house, we... Fran and I, we, we bought a bunch of candy and then like nobody came to the door and now I'm not supposed to eat candy. So that that's kind of off the table. But if you are out there planning for Halloween um, and you've been in the grocery store lately to buy candy, you, you got a degree of sticker shock coming here. Um, here is the story in the Wall Street Journal. Soaring inflation pushes Halloween candy prices scary high. The cost of candy ingredients like flour and sugar has surged more than the overall inflation rate, leaving many customers with sticker shock ahead of Halloween. Um, candy prices are up more than 13 percent from a year ago, according to the Labor Department, the largest ever yearly jump for candy. Surging labor costs and skyrocketing flour and sugar prices have helped fuel the increase. Customers say they have been experiencing sticker shock in the candy aisle this month as they reckon with this unfamiliar question, do you overspend on sweets or leave empty-handed for going holiday fun? And so that's kind of the issue. One of the examples they're saying is that some guy goes into a a convenience store. He wants to buy a family-sized bag of Swedish fish, one of his favorite candies. I'm not even sure what that is. He saw, he said, typically it's like six bucks. It's up to 11 bucks. Guy says he left the store without buying this. Um, the average household um, is expected to spend about $100 on candy costumes and decorations. By comparison, you know, people spent about $74 for Halloween a couple years ago. And a lot of people are saying, okay, here's, here's the deal. We're, we're having to cut back on Halloween because of the expenses. There's another story. USA Today, talking about the most popular candies that are out there. I mean, the, the really good stuff, the Reese's, the Skittles, M&M's, Starburst, all those type of things. And the cost of those is increasing even faster than that 13%. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. All right, let's just tee this up. We've only got a couple minutes. But inflation in the Halloween aisle— have you seen this, and is it affecting and impacting how you're doing Halloween 2022? The fact that maybe you used to do the the Snickers bars or whatever, and those costs are up 15 or 20 percent. Are you cutting back on this, which is the most discretionary of spending? 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. Inflation in the candy aisle. Is it messing with Halloween? Okay, so if you have been shopping for Halloween and you're thinking, my gosh, stuff is considerably more expensive. If that is your sense, your sense is exactly correct. Okay, so I'm looking at this story, um, and it's this, it's this outfit called Data Assembly, which tracks product data. So here is the deal. 
Mars Candy, which makes Starbucks, a Starbucks, Starburst, and Skittles. They have had the biggest price increases. Starbucks, Starburst cost 35% more this year than last year. Skittles cost 42% more this year than last year. Nestle's Crunch and Butterfinger Bars saw the lowest price increases of 6 and 7% respectively. Overall, the candy sector has had some of the biggest price jumps of any grocery category in recent months. On Amazon.com, the price of a family-sized bag of Sour Patch Kids jumped to sixteen ninety nine this month from twelve bucks in October last year. So it's gone up from twelve dollars to seventeen bucks. A fun size a bag of fun size Snickers bars on Amazon this month sold for more than twelve bucks. October of last year it sold for five bucks. Wow. I mean that's those are just kind of like staggering things. And the, the question is are people going to end up be cutting cutting back as a result of of this. Jeff, I'm living on a budget and I started buying candy two months ago. My kids attend a trunk or treat and I decorate my trunk. And last year we had over 400 kids and this year they are projecting close to 600. This year, unfortunately, the kids won't be getting a bag of candy from me, but about two or three each. But for my house, my big bar giver, I have about 60 bars for home and about 2,000 miniatures for trunk or treat. Jeff, sorry, no candy for the kids this year. It is just too flat-out expensive. Well, uh, it, it is one of those deals where if you're used to giving out what I'm going to say is is the good stuff. What does my story say here? The the most desirable. This is the top 10 favorite candies. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, Skittles, M&M's, Starburst, and those are the two of those four are the ones that had the biggest price increases. Hot Tamales, eh, Sour Patch Kids, Hershey Kisses, Snickers, Tootsie Pops, and Candy Corn. Well, Candy Corn is incredibly controversial. I I know that. The worst candy, Circus Peanuts, yeah, Peanut Butter Kisses, Necco Wafers, Wax Cola Bottles, Smarties, Mary Janes, Tootsie Rolls, Licorice, and Good and Plenty. That's on the worst list. So, you know, people can start arguing about that. Jeff, in Bayview, we got about 1,200 kids in about an hour and a half, and we run out. We only bought 1,000 pieces this year because it is what we spend. So, yeah, that's, I mean, you're on the budget. You've got, okay, here's here's the deal. We've got 50 bucks for Halloween or however much you're going to buy, and it just doesn't go as far. Jeff, this will be the first year in a long time that we will not be partaking in distributing out candy. We get over 200 kids, and our kids are all grown, and now we're going to take the money and go to dinner and a movie, have a date night for ourselves. Yeah, there's, um, you know, there's, there's no doubt about it. Circus peanuts, come on. I'm just saying that's what the survey says is the worst. Um, it's the worst deal that's out there. Jeff, the candy prices could be blessings in disguise for people's weight. You know, somebody said that yesterday about, well, you know, we shouldn't be encouraging Halloween. It's obesity. And to which I'm like, you know, it's just, it's just one of those, it's just one of those things where for that one night you get to indulge, um, you get to indulge it. Jeff, I just bought $40 worth of, uh, I just spent $40 for two bags of minis. Huh. 40 for two bags of minis. Um, Jeff, how is it possible you've never heard of Swedish fish? Don't know. Never. Maybe maybe I've had them. Don't know what Swedish fish are. Um, if I saw them, perhaps I would 
recognize them, but no, never heard of them. I guess that was just one of my parents' failings, that they didn't say, hey, you're getting a Swedish fish. Um, so there you go. But the bottom line of this is, if you think that inflation is having an impact on, on all sorts of things, whether it's gas prices or whatever, it, it's actually it's one of these down-to-earth type of things as well, where you see the price of candy going up and up and up, and it is causing, I think, some people to rethink what they're going to do on Halloween or to make a reassessment of, this is what I've always done, but maybe I, I need to cut back, or if I'm normally bought a 1,000 candy bars, I'm, you know, I'm just in a situation where... Um, this year, it's, it's going to only, I'm only going to have 800 or, you know, whatever. Jeff, I'm like the Ebenezer Scrooge of ha- Scrooge of Halloween. I hope kids don't show up at my door. Well, you know, no, I, I see, I think Halloween is fun. There's no question about it. Um, but it's, it's fun. If you don't want to participate, you don't have to participate. But this is one of the examples of what's going on in real life. You know, people are going to that candy aisle, and they're saying, I'm used to buying this different stuff. And what they're finding is that it's, it's a, just an absolute and total surprise. 